I'm the Morris Campus pastor here, and I'm pumped that you're here this morning. I'm pumped about where we're at in this series that we're calling Mission. It's, uh, we've been teaching through the book of Acts. And uh, as we've gone through, we've just called the series Mission. We've also decided to call our church Mission. That's all new news. In case you're new around here, uh, you're about as new as the church name. And so, um, well, well, here's the big idea. If you're just turning in, here's what the series is all about. We've looked at how Jesus was uh, descending back to heaven, and he left the church, this brand new movement, in the hands of, of some of his disciples. And he said, you guys are going to go, and I'm giving you this incredible mission to bring the good news of my salvation to all the earth. And they've actually done it. We see all through the book of Acts, God working through them and doing miracles and, and helping people believe. And now 2,000 years later, you and I are here because of this movement that started halfway around the world. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. But the big idea for this whole series is not just that we can clap for these early disciples who, you know, God used in an amazing way, but that everyone who decides to follow Jesus is part of this same mission. And Jesus says, until I return, he wants us to be a part of it. And so as we see how they worshiped God and how they trusted God and how God used them, we can say that he wants to involve us and in, in work through us in the same ways. That's the idea of mission, okay? And uh, over the last month, we've done a prayer campaign. And so I hope that you are part of it. In fact, we were doing text reminders if people wanted to subscribe. We had almost 500 people say, you know, text me updates to prayer. And so for about a month, we've said, let's get as many people from our church praying specifically about Mission Morris. So that next year in 2020, we're sending a group of people to plant a new church, a campus of Mission Bible Church in Morris so that we can continue this mission and reach more people for Jesus. And so we said for a month, let's get as many people as praying as possible. And we gave you little topics and things to pray for. And so thanks for praying. We're going to actually wrap up that kind of um, campaign with a day of fasting. And so uh, we're, we're basically doing tomorrow. So we tried to give you the heads up last week in case you wanted to plan all your meals or whatever around this. But uh, I want to invite you to be a part of this. No guilt trip or anything like that. I don't know if you've ever fasted or have heard of fasting. Uh, the real short answer of fasting is basically deciding to go without something in order to go after God. And that uh, specifically, if it was going to say, I'm going to not eat for however, you know, a meal, a day. Jesus did 40 days. We're not quite there yet. But um, <laughs> that you would go without food and say, God, I want you and I want what I'm asking for more than food. You know, and I always say, God knows how much I like to eat. So I think that's a really powerful prayer. And so the idea is that if you have a lunch break or a moment where you'd have breakfast, that instead of spending time eating, you could actually spend some focused time in prayer. And then throughout the day, you know, you thought texts were a good reminder to pray. Every time you feel hungry because you missed a meal or two, it's just a, a simple way to remember, all right, God, I want to I raise up a prayer to you. And so uh, I, we're basically doing dinner to dinner. So we'd eat dinner tonight and then tomorrow um, until dinner, and then we'll eat dinner tomorrow night. And so it's basically a full day of saying, God, we're going to fast and pray. And so as you pray, um, you could pray for lots of things, and that's totally cool. I've been praying that God would meet you in that if you've ever decided that you would, you would step in into that. That's a God-honoring thing. I've been praying that God would meet you in that and that he would hear our prayers. But pray for our church and um, specifically pray for this idea of this new church that the same kind of things we've had as topics, that God would provide a location, that God would call people from this church to go and make that happen and be a part of the launch team and that uh, he'd be preparing people's hearts in, Mo in Morris. And so uh, that's what the day of fasting is. A couple other Morris campus updates. Next weekend, as you come into the lobby, you will see we're building this big two-sided thing 
where we'll have a, a Morris campus wall and a Manuka campus wall. And um, we're going to be asking every person to consider stepping out in faith or stepping up in faith. And what we mean by that is we're looking for people to be on this launch team that they would say, I'm going to step out and go to Morris, okay? And we're hoping that a lot of people want to, you know, come to church in Morris. But right now, what we're really looking for is people who want to go help us make church happen in Morris. And they would be helping us get started and, and know how to set up and, and volunteer to serve there. And so we're going to have a wall where people could say, I'm in. I, I'll hold babies, you know, or I'll make the coffee or whatever. That we, we're going to need a lot of hands on deck. And so, uh, but at the same time, we realize that as we send, we're hoping for like a couple hundred people on this launch team. That leaves a lot of uh, holes here for volunteers and even leaders. And so uh, the other side of the wall is going to be about the Manuka campus, that we would say we have significant needs here, that maybe you don't feel like God's calling you to go be part of making the Morris Church happen, but would you step up and, and, and get involved here? And so that's going to be happening. So uh, this week, maybe even tomorrow as you're fasting and praying, that you would ask God, what do you want me to do in all of this? And if he's calling you to be a part of one or the other, we would love to celebrate that with you. And then we're going to have our very first Morris campus launch team meeting on november 23rd okay and so if if you're like i can't wait i'm all in sign me up then you're here and but really when we talk about our launch team this is people who are saying i'm committed to helping make the church happen but when we have our launch team meetings we realize that you're like this is the first i've heard about it or i'm just curious or, i'd like to meet some people that are going to morris then you're invited to these meetings we'll have donuts and coffee for you uh we're going to pray for what god's calling us to we're going to spend some time you know gearing up and building over the next several months towards making that happen. So you're all invited to that, and that's what the launch team meeting is about. So if you want to put that on your calendar, and we'll, we'll blast that out to you guys in other ways. So as we jump in this morning back into our series mission, um, I wanted to ask you just a couple questions. Has anyone ever been lost? Raise your hand if you've ever gotten lost. Maybe while driving, and you know what road you're on. Um, when I was a kid, I got lost in the woods with my brother. And uh, I don't think we were lost for very long, but he's two years older than me. And when he started to get scared, I just assumed we were going to die out there. I figured <laughs> it might have been like 12 minutes or something, but it felt like it, that was the end for me. And so um, you, you, you might know that feeling. An even worse feeling, and I'm not going to make you, you know, embarrass yourself and raise your hand, but have you, have you ever lost one of your children? And I've done this a bunch, like maybe at a grocery store, you know, like in the other aisle, but it, it feels like you have no, like what could happen. Um, a few years back, we went to Disney World, and this was like a dream vacation for us. We planned, we saved, we had a garage sale, you know, and we're like, we're finally going to make this Disney vacation dream come true. And so then a bunch of our friends are like, hey, are you going to, are you going to stay in one of those sweet Disney resorts? And I was like, no, I can't afford one of those sweet Disney resorts. And are you going to get like the, the seven-day pass where you can go to all the parks? And I was like, no, we're, we're doing one day, one park, because it's really expensive. In fact, at the time, our kids were pretty young, and I thought, if I just send my wife and my daughter and they take a lot of pictures, I can probably convince the boys that they were there, right? <laughs> it crossed my mind. But... We sprung for, six, for five tickets and we went, we had, we had three little kids at the time. My parents were with us on the vacation. They went to Disney World with us. And so we had three kids and we had four adults. So most of the day you're tugging around a kid because this is spring break, Disney World, you know, tens of thousands of guests, one of the busiest places you could be in the planet at that time. And, um, but from time to time you wouldn't have a kid because, you know, he's with grandpa or he's with your wife or whatever. And so I'll, I'll never forget in the afternoon we got in line for this ride. We were all excited for the kids to be on this ride. And as we, we kind of settled into the line, we start looking around, and I only count two kids. And I'm like, well, I thought he was with Grandpa, or I thought you had him, and, you know. And, and, and so all of a sudden, we're, we're like freaking out. 
because we lost a six-year-old boy. And uh, so it's like, forget being in line. Let's go back where we came from. You know, let's divide and conquer. You go that way. And, and there's a sea of people, and we're looking for this tiny person. And, and, and as a few minutes go by, you get more and more anxious and nervous, and you start thinking the worst of things, right? Like, how scared can this little kid be? And, and worried is he? Or, or what if he's not, like, lost? And what if he's kidnapped, you know? And, and how long do I wait before I alert the authorities and call like an Amber Alert or something, because like there's thousands and thousands of people here and we might need some help, and I don't want to overly freak out. But and then eventually my you know my wife found him, but then she had to find me and get a hold of me and let me know like it all is good, you can calm down. And uh, what a horrible feeling. Worse than being lost is to lose someone that's important to you, someone that you're responsible for, uh, uh, your own child. And when we found him, you know. Man, we yelled at him for getting split up from us. <laughs> no, that's not true. We hugged him, right? Like, he might, have been, he might as well have been gone for two years because we were so happy to see him. And that feeling of what was lost is found. And maybe you know that feeling. That's the idea that I want us to have in the back of our minds as we read this story today. So in the beginning, uh, in, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we're going to look at the story of, of a guy named Stephen. Now, we met Stephen last week, if you were here, uh, in, in our series. We talked about how there's this time where the church is getting bigger and the uh, original apostles couldn't do everything, so they appoint lay leaders to help lead different ministries of the church. And one of those guys is Stephen. And we're going to look at what happens, the, you know, in the next few verses here of the, the life, the story of Stephen. Okay, so in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, it says this, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some of the men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. And none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. I want to point out a couple things. First, right at the top, Stephen is a man full of God's grace and power. Which is really cool. Luke writes the book of Acts and he, you know, did interviews and he was there for part of it. And so as he's introducing Stephen, he can't help but like tell us, this is his reputation. How would you like people to say that about you? That if somebody was introducing you to their friends, they would just have to pause and say, he's full of God's grace and power. And so this guy is just on fire for God. And so what happens is these people try to debate him. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him in trouble because the Jewish leaders were against the whole Jesus movement. And they see Stephen as a new leader. And look at verse 10. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. That's incredible. Uh, in our English translation, spirit is, is uppercase because it's not, you know, we, we use that word lightly in other ways. But this is talking about the Holy Spirit. This isn't just Stephen being smart. This is the Holy Spirit working through Stephen. In fact, I put it this way. Stephen is given wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And so can you and I. This is a big deal. That these, you know, Stephen was not very educated. He was not smarter than them. In fact, they probably knew the scriptures better. And they were, you know, it wasn't like he stayed up late and crammed for this debate. It was, you know, it was not Stephen who was, you know, unable to be refuted. It was the Holy Spirit working through Stephen. And that same spirit of wisdom is offered to you and to me. In fact, what's really cool, I want to show you these verses from Luke, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he basically tells us what happens to Stephen is going to happen to them. And so in Luke chapter 21, it says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons 
and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you're my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words, and this is awesome, and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to refute you. This is exactly what we see happening to Stephen, that these brilliant Jewish leaders are trying to debate with him, and it says none of them could stand against the wisdom with he spoke, because God gave him wisdom through the Holy Spirit. And that's promised to all of his, God, to all of his followers. In fact, at the very, uh, one of the latest books in the New Testament we have is written by a guy named James. James is one of the leaders in the church. And look what James says in chapter 1, verse 5. He says to all Christians, all of Jesus' disciples, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What an amazing promise. That as we see Stephen is a man full of God's grace and power, full of God's spirit, God working through him in incredible ways, and it was really the, the wisdom that was given to him through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus lets us know that when you need wisdom, you can ask God and he'll give it to you. That's an incredible promise. Have you ever had a moment where you're talking to somebody, uh, you know, a neighbor, a coworker, and you're just like, I don't have the answer. If you've ever tried to raise a teenager and you had a moment where you're like, I don't know how to describe this or how to help, you know, and you know that you need wisdom from God, the good news is you can ask God. I do this all the time in conversations because people usually think I'm smart and then eventually they realize I'm not. And so as they're talking to me, in my mind, I'm praying, God, I need your wisdom. I don't have a good answer for this person. I don't, I don't have the right anything to offer, but you do. And God can give you wisdom like he did Stephen. That's an awesome promise. All right, back to Acts, back to Stephen. So it says that none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So since they couldn't trip him up, they couldn't catch him in a contradiction, they drum up people to lie about him. They produce false witnesses just to get him in trouble. Which, if you know the story of Jesus' like arrest and trial and crucifixion, it's the same thing that happened to Jesus, okay? Look at the next verses, chapter 6, verse 11. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. And this roused the people and the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen, and they brought him before the high council. Verse 13, the lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the custom Moses handed down to us. So they have these people lying about what he said. Now, he probably talked about Jesus and how, you know, we, uh, the temple is not just a building, it's the church. And they're taking what he said and they're twisting it and they're making up lies. But if, if you know anything about uh, these good Jewish rabbi teachers of the law kind of guys, there's three people that you don't mess with. There's three things that you don't mess with. Um, the temple, the law, and their Moses, Right? And so these guys are like, this guy is trash-talking the temple, and he's trash-talking the law, and he's trash-talking Moses. And this, so all of a sudden, this is how they're going to get him in trouble with the guys who can actually do something about it. And look at the next verse, verse 15. It says this. At, this is so interesting. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. This is incredible. As Luke's writing this, recording this story, he lets us know that everybody, all these important people, they're fixed on Stephen. They're all staring at him because there's something up with his face where it's glowing. It's shining. His face became as bright 
as in angels. Now, I don't know exactly what this means. I tried to study it or, you know, look into people smarter than me to see, like, what it means. And um, some people said it was probably this aura of confidence and the fact that he was so calm and so confident in this moment that people just noticed it. But I really think it's more than just that is true. But I think they're staring at him because they can visibly, physically see something up with this guy. And we see this happen in the Old Testament with Moses, that Moses actually gets so close to God that he comes down off the mountain and his face is glowing. He has to put a veil over it to cover it from the people that he's talking to. And it grows dimmer. And then as he spends time with God, it grows brighter. And I think as we see Stephen is full of God's spirit, on fire for God. And in this moment, Jesus is working through him in such power that these people just notice there's something up with this guy. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe he was pregnant. You know, Stephen, you're glowing. I don't know. <laughs> but they noticed and they stared at him because his face became as bright as an angel. And the next verse is the new chapter in verse 1 of chapter 7 says this. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? So here's like, here's Stephen's kind of one phone call moment, right? He gets, he gets one chance to defend himself. He gets one chance to, to talk to this crowd of Jewish leaders. And what's amazing is he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't plead not guilty. He doesn't even enter into that conversation. He sees a crowd of people. He says, if I got one chance to talk to you guys, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And we're not going to read all of chapter 7, but in one chapter, he gives us a summary of the entire Old Testament. It's pretty good if you want to check it out this week. But what he does is he's talking to this audience of Jewish leaders. He starts with their heroes, Abraham and Moses. And he walks through the, the Old Testament. And I got to think, they're like, yeah, that's right. That's true. We love that guy. We love that guy too. But what, he's, what he shows them is he says, and all through Abraham and Moses and all the Old Testament and the prophets and the law, God was leading up to Jesus. And he's letting them know, you need Jesus. Moses won't save you. Following the rules won't save you. Going to temple won't save you. Jesus is the Savior. And he's letting them know, and you need a Savior. You're guilty of, you, you killed him. And, and, and so um, look what happens in verse 54. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations. And he's just saying, you know, you guys need Jesus. You killed Jesus. And Stephen knows it's not too late. You can still ask for forgiveness. But they're ticked about it. And they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. This is an incredible image. So as these guys are getting more and more angry, and it's getting more and more uncomfortable for Stephen, and eventually they're going to kill him, and he's on trial, and this mob of angry people is after him. And these are the same people who really did kill Jesus, so he knows they're capable of some horrible things. He's fixed his gaze up to the sky at some, somehow, and he, he's given this vision of God. And I don't know if everybody else could have seen it and they just didn't look, or if it was just, I think it was probably just for Stephen. But he sees God sitting on the throne and he sees Jesus standing next to him. And it makes me think in, in Romans 8, it's, Paul says, who can dare accuse you? Who can bring an accusation against you? Satan will try to accuse you. Maybe people will lie about you. But Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. And I think it was a sweet moment where Stephen sees Jesus doing exactly what he said he would. Sitting, standing next to the Father, interceding for you. That although these people bring accusations for you, although what's happening is, is horrible and uncomfortable, Jesus, God is still God, and Jesus is talking to his Father about you, pleading your case for you. It's just an amazing thing. So he tells them about it. And he says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And, 
this is what really like ticks them off the most because they just want him to stop talking about Jesus, stop saying that Jesus is in heaven, that Jesus is God. One commentator said, you know, the idea that usually we hear that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne. Here he's standing. Perhaps it's because he's applauding Stephen because he's so proud of him. I don't know. It's kind of interesting that Luke says that, that Stephen saw him standing. But verse 57, then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. They rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. And his accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, if you ever took like English 101, Luke is a good writer and he, he mentions this guy named Saul. Now one, it's historically accurate. Saul was there and the Bible is always historically accurate. And I love that about the Bible, especially Luke's writing, that he gives us, you know, like historical truth in there so that we can know that it's real. But it's also really good foreshadowing, you know, like you'd circle that in your textbook and pay attention to this guy named Saul. This is a big character that, that Luke is now introducing and we're going to get to him going forward. But this is, uh, well, check out what Stephen says. Okay, so they, they, the, they drag him out of the city to stone him, to murder him, which is uh, allowable by their law, but undeserved because he actually hasn't done anything to deserve it. In the next verse is uh, verse 59. As they stoned him, Stephen, and I didn't want to put the rest up there. I don't know if you, if you got your own Bible, you spoiled it. But um, so often, we, maybe you've heard this story before, maybe you've read this before. If you've never read this or heard this, what, here's, you know, what do I think Stephen would do? You know, what I expect is, as they stoned him, Stephen cried. Or Stephen begged for mercy. He begged them not to throw the stones. He told them how innocent he was. As they stoned him, this is what I would expect Stephen to do, but it's not what happens. Look what happens. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed. And this is where it's like, okay, you ever have one of those friends that's just a little bit too Christian, you know? And like the moment you're angry, they're like, maybe you should pray. And you're like, I don't want to pray right now. I just want to be ticked off at her, Right? And like, maybe you should forgive him. And you're like, no, I'll try to do that tomorrow. But right now I'm in this angry moment, right? And so like Stephen's almost too good for us. But it's just amazing that in this moment he prays. He's not, he's not going to lose his focus on who his God is and what his mission is. And so he just gives himself to God. And what he prays is this amazing prayer where we see faith and trust that God is going to take care of him. Look what happens. As they stone him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And this is where he's saying, God, I give you my spirit. I'm trusting you not only with my life, but with my eternity, with my soul for eternity. I trust you. It almost I hear joy in his voice. Like I'm coming home, Jesus. Receive my spirit. This is amazing how he prays. And then it says, he fell to his knees shouting. And again, what would I shout if I was Stephen? I'd probably shout, how dare you? Or I would shout, Jesus save me. Or I might, maybe I would expect him to shout like, you guys will pay for this. I told you about Jesus. This blood is on your head. Someday you're going to have to, you know, I, I, I would have this like vengeful thought and judgment on them. This is not what he shouts. This is incredible. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. And how Jesus-like was this? If you know the story of Jesus on the cross, he actually prays for the people who are killing him, even though he doesn't deserve it. And Stephen, just like Jesus, they make up false accusations against him. They go to kill him for, he doesn't deserve it, and he's actually praying for them. Here's the amazing thing. Stephen is more concerned with their salvation than his own freedom. See, I would have shouted that I didn't deserve it. I would have begged for mercy. Instead, he's praying, God, I'm, I'm okay with whatever you want to happen. And I actually, 
I hope that um, you'll forgive these guys someday. Don't charge them with this sin. Stephen is more concerned with their salvation than his own freedom. This is amazing. Uh, he actually has compassion for the men who are killing him in the moment. That's ridiculous to me. He's more concerned with their spiritual well-being than his own physical well-being because he knows their sin issue is way bigger deal. He's good. Uh, he has no anger towards them in this moment. I would have been angry, right? He has no hatred in his heart for them in this moment. In fact, I think the one thing he's afraid of is that they would go to hell for their sins. And even though he already told, I'd be like, I told you guys once, I'm good, I did my job. And instead, even with his dying breaths, he's praying that they would somehow find Jesus someday and not have to go to hell for their sin. And you know what? He debated them already. He didn't win any of them by debating with them. But his witness and his compassion may have just made a difference in some of their hearts. I'll find out when I get to heaven. But this is amazing. And here's why. Because Stephen is driven by Jesus-like compassion. This is what marked Stephen's life, Stephen's ministry, whether he was in trouble with the law or whatever it is. What drives Stephen is Jesus-like compassion. He sees people the way Jesus sees people. He loves people the way Jesus loves people. This is what drives his life. And this is really what drives the whole Acts church. As we see these men and women who are used by God to say amazing things and do amazing things and change the earth and change the face of eternity because of the message of Jesus, what drives them is this Jesus-like compassion that they know that people that don't yet know Jesus need him even if they don't realize it yet and they'll do anything to love them into eternity. Uh, a lot of times what I'm driven by is what I'm supposed to do. Jesus says I shouldn't say that or Jesus says I shouldn't do that or Jesus says I should love him. You know, and, and if you've ever just like because you want to honor God and you want to do what's right, you try to obey, you try to do good, I think that's actually really good. I think that's actually really admirable. If that's your motivation, praise God for that. And he says he honors that. He says when you love me, you'll obey my commands. And he promises, our, he promises blessing for obedience. And so if your whole motivation is just because this is what I'm supposed to do, that's actually really good. But there's another level of following and honoring God. And it's Jesus-like compassion. That you wouldn't just tell someone about Jesus because that's what good Christians do. But you would tell them about Jesus because you know how much they need Jesus. And you are driven by a compassion that they need him so badly. So here's my question for us today. Do you see people who are against Jesus as lost or wrong? I wish I thought of this. Though. I wrote this down because I read it in a book. But... Um, like 10 years ago, and it never left me. Because it's so easy to see people as wrong, right? How could you talk like that? How could you treat her like that? How could you believe that? How could you live your life like that? And especially in our culture, things are so political, and we so often feel like we got to choose sides, and it's this major issue, and so you guys are wrong, and I'm in the right. And as Christians, we, we, we know how Jesus is, and God has told us to live, and it's really true. God gave us rules that are actually good for us. That, you know, if you live the way God wants you to live, your relationships will be better. It's physically better. It's emotionally better. And we know this to be true. And so then it's so easy to write somebody off. Like, how, how can you not believe what the pastor just said? How can you not live the way that's better for you? You're so wrong. And we feel so divided. And what happens is we can accidentally push away the very people who we're called to minister to. Jesus never saw people as wrong. He saw them as lost. In fact, he said, I came to seek and save those who are lost. You know, when we found my six-year-old son at Disney World, <laughs> we realized he wasn't wrong for being lost. He was just lost. And we were so happy to know that he was okay and that he wasn't scared and that we had him back and we can go back in line and ride some more rides. And it's the same idea of people who don't yet know Jesus. No matter how against God they seem, 
how you know, abrasively against God they lived. And it's so easy to see them as wrong if our hearts would say they're just lost. They actually, they don't even know better. They're the ones missing out on the freedom and the forgiveness of sins that comes from Jesus. And what they need is our help. Not our lectures or our lessons or our judgment or our debates, but they need us to love them. Here's another question. What do sinners do? They sin, right? Yeah, it's a real theological question. Um, But here's what we do. A lot of times as Christians, we expect people to act like Jesus when they haven't met him yet. We want people to start behaving like Christians before they're Christians. And we say, you're so wrong for the way you live your life. You're so wrong for the things that you believe. And instead we would say, okay, you're a sinner. You don't know better. You don't have the power of Jesus to stand against temptation yet. I'm going to try and lead you to Jesus because you're lost and I want you to be found. And then going forward, you know, what did Jesus say? Go and tell people about me. Baptize them in my name. And then teach them everything that I've commanded. But first we're called to reach them for Jesus and help them be found. In my house, we make a big deal out of lying, or at least we try to. The idea that, you know, uh, you could do something wrong, but if you, do, if you lie about it, that's twice as wrong, right? Like, if you hit your brother, that's wrong. But if you lie about hitting your brother, that's even more wrong. And like, from a young age, we just always talked about, like, if you do something wrong, just own up to it, get in trouble, but don't lie about it. There's nothing worse than lying. And so, uh, then as my kids were little, they would get, like, really offended if somebody lied to them, right? Because they believed, like, there's nothing worse than you could lie to somebody. And so, they would, like, come home from school and tell me these stories or tattle on each other because he lied to me. And I'd be like, well, well, you know, what, what was it? And, and then I was like, listen, you're little kids. Sometimes someone tells you something incorrect just because they don't know better, right? It's not because they're trying to deceive you. And I had to teach them, there's a difference of I'm lying to you, trying to deceive you, or I just, you know, I'm six and I don't know better, right? And so give them a break. But this is how it is with people who don't yet know Jesus. No matter what their life looks like or how they've treated you personally, if we can realize they're not this horrible, wrong person that we need to push away, they're just lost. Maybe they just don't even know better. And so what I want to do as we finish this morning is uh, have a moment where we pray. And I want you to be able to pray um, to God right where you're at on your own. And, and, and then we're going to sing one more song. So I want to invite the band to come on up. And uh, we're going to close by, by singing a song. But first, I want us to just have a moment of prayer. So would you stand and we'll pray and then we'll sing. And here's, here's how I want us to pray this morning. That... Um, I believe if you're like me, it's easy to maybe do the right thing just because you're supposed to, but I want to go to the next level. And we can ask that God would grow in us a heart of compassion. So right where you're at, would you bow your head and just have a moment where you can talk to God. And if, if, if you're in that same boat where you say, God, I, I want to honor you, I want to be used by you, but I want it to be because I'm driven by Jesus-like compassion. Would you just, in your own words, uh, have a moment to pray that to God?